Northern Australia because he came down without the, the handheld mic there. So thank you. Uh, you're all very welcome this morning to our morning service, uh, be it in person here in the church or indeed online if you're watching through our church app via Facebook Live. Maybe later on uh, you'll be watching on YouTube or listening CD Minister. You are all very welcome. And we trust and pray that you will enjoy our time of worship together. And on your behalf, I welcome Mark back again. It's good to see Mark back amongst us here in First Breath Island. Uh, Mark wasn't well there for a wee while, but he's well recovered, well recuperated. He's looking good. So it's good to see him and Naomi back amongst us here again. So you're very welcome back. And we look forward to hearing what Mark uh, is uh, going to say to us later on in ministry. It's encouraging to bring some good news to the congregation. You'll see already this morning on the screen some good news relating to our youth organisations about the recommencement of activities. And I think that's a good sign. And even despite the fact that uh, COVID is still very much around us in the local community, we still need to be careful. We need to protect ourselves. We need to protect our friends and family. We still need to ensure that we manage and maintain our social distancing. Sanitization is incredibly important. and We just need to be ultimately careful. But it's good that our leaders within the church have made plans and preparations to recommence again. And I want to bring a short list for your attention this morning. It's encouraging to note that midweek Bible study and prayer meeting will recommence in person in the church hall on Wednesday the 6th of October at 8 o'clock. That's the first Wednesday in October. So that's really good news. And uh, there will be uh, a variety of, uh, of things happening. There are different speakers and different formats of that program. So back in person in the main hall, commencing Wednesday the 6th uh, of October. GB uh, will return on Thursday the 6th of October, which is really good news again for the Girls' Brigade. And... Uh, it's good to know that they're going to meet uh, alternatively uh, on a weekly basis. So uh, think and pray for the work of the GB as they commence their uh, return, as well as Boys Brigade, uh, which recommences on Friday the 13th of October. Now, both organisations have been busy in the background with a, a range of activities over the summer period, but this will be their first time back into face-to-face -face contact with the young people on the premises. So that... There will be challenging times there for both the youth organisations, so keep them in your mind. And if you happen to see the captains or the leaders of those organisations, I know you will do this, but I encourage you to continue to encourage them as they make challenging uh, decisions. And all those decisions are based on information they receive from their governing bodies and also the information received from Church House, particularly around the restrictions and guidelines. Then PW will return in person on Wednesday the 19th of October. And that's good news again for PW. So there you, you are, you're well informed. And all of this information will be online and we'll, we'll get that on the screen and we'll keep reminding folk in the weeks that lie ahead. As far as Sunday school goes, uh, there's a plan to meet uh, this Thursday evening. Uh, Mark uh, Annett has agreed to coordinate the recommencement of Sunday school, which is great news in the absence just at the minute of a superintendent. Uh, so Mark has agreed to coordinate that in the meantime. So if you've been a Sunday school teacher 
uh, or it's uh, within your, your mind, your heart of the man to be led into youth ministry in some way. Well, Sunday school is a great place to be. And we're great to see our young people back into Sunday school in the near future. So plans will commence to try and get uh, Sunday school back into face-to-face contact very, very soon. Next Sunday morning, the speaker will be Mr. George McClelland. It will be traditionally our Harvest Thanksgiving service next Sunday. And even though it is scaled back as it was last year, uh, it will be next Sunday. And so in advance, we thank all of those who will be involved in either the decoration of the church or in preparation for that service. And could I just maybe make an appeal to anybody who's listening online that if you maybe haven't been to church in a wee while, maybe you're not self-isolating and you're just a bit nervous about coming back to church, could I encourage you to come back to uh, our place of worship next Sunday morning uh, for Harvest Thanksgiving. We, uh, we have... Uh, modified the church to accommodate the current rules and regulations where we can meet now at one metre distance. So church is a safe place to be. I think that's a very encouraging message to give this morning that church is a safe place to be. It's as safe, if not safer, than some of the other places in public life. And so I would encourage you to consider uh, coming back for harvest next Sunday morning. It is with sadness that I have to announce the passing of Mr. John McNeely, formerly of Cross Heights here in the town. We extend our heartfelt sympathy to John's family, to his wife Joan, and to Andrew, Ian, Paul and Amanda at this very difficult time. John's funeral will take place tomorrow, Uh, leaving the house at 12 noon, uh, coming to here to the church graveyard. Uh, The house and funeral is strictly private, but the family have asked and encouraged that if anybody wants to pay their respects, they can line the route from Cross Heights, John Street, across the square, and down Uri Street here to our church graveyard. These are all announcements, and I'll very happily now hand you over to Mark, who will lead the remaining part of our service. Thank you. Thank you, David, for the, the warm welcome. Psalm 147 and verse 1 reads, Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. As we gather for worship this Sunday morning, we do so as a people who know the only true and living God, the only God. And let us give thanks that we do not come in the name of a a false God conjured up by human minds or, or by evil forces. We do not worship a God who is made by hand, who can sit on our mantelpiece, who can fit our needs and fit our wants. We do not worship a God that changes to appease those who curse his name. But we give thanks that we come into this church this morning knowing that we worship and can have fellowship with the one true and living God, great Jehovah three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, the only God who is worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship, and worthy of our adoration, the one who demands our soul, our life, and our all, the one who will be the firm focus of our worship for millennia and for eternity thereafter. Let us praise the Lord now as we open our service 
with the words of the first hymn, Glory be to God the Father, glory be to God the Son, glory be to God the Spirit, great Jehovah, three in one. Let's stand to sing. Let's become, uh, come before God in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come and bow in your presence on this day of worship, we give thanks that you are indeed the only God, three in one and one in three, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, we see your love in sending Christ to redeem us. We see the love that Christ has for us in the shedding of his blood to wash away our sins. And we praise you for your Spirit implanting in our hearts eternal life and revealing to us the glories of our Saviour and King. Blessed Trinity, O God, we praise Thee and bless Thy name for showing us such immense love, love undeserved, unspeakable, 
to save us who once were lost and wandering in a desolate place, a place of utter darkness. Father, we thank you for sending into that darkness the light of the world, the light of the gospel. Thank you, Father God, for bringing us a joy and a peace everlasting. Father, we know your presence with us this morning. We find it easier to know you're with us in church on a Sunday morning, but the rest of the week we do struggle and we pull away from you many a time. But we trust in your promise that you will never leave us. So, Father, stay with us. Dwell in each of us. Each moment of each day that we have on earth, for your presence is our only comfort and rest, just as your absence is our only sorrow. May your Holy Spirit draw us near to you this morning, be working and moving in each of our hearts. May the things of the world be forgotten in this time altogether. And may we worship you with one heart and with one voice. Teach us by your word. Set our hearts on fire for you. And may your kingdom grow and be strengthened in this place this morning. Search our hearts. Cast out all that is unclean. And may what we offer up to you now in worship be acceptable before you, our holy God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Bible reading this morning is found in the book of Revelation, uh, a well-known passage in chapter 3, the letter to the church in Laodicea. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up there, um, or it will be on the screen. It's Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you are either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover the shame Cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. And we end our reading there. Boys and girls, the passage that we have just read from God's Word together is a letter. And it's a letter that's addressed to a church a long time ago. A church by the name of Laodicea. And the person that was speaking through this letter was Jesus himself. And I think that's absolutely amazing. Imagine if you go home and you go to your letterbox... And you open up your mail and you find a letter that's from Jesus himself. And you probably expect this letter to have some of the loveliest things in it that you've ever read. Maybe Jesus would tell you how much he loves you. How much he's, he's done for you. Maybe tell you that he's preparing a place for you in heaven. Maybe congratulate you and say well done for, for praying, for, for reading your Bible and for telling others about me. For growing in your faith. And maybe the church that received this letter thought they were going to hear those same things. How great they were. 
how pleased Jesus was at how well they were doing. But that's not what we read at all. Instead, Jesus tells them that he's almost he's sick of the sight of them. He's about to throw up at the sight of them. They were supposed to be putting him first. He was supposed to be the focus. But instead, Jesus was on the outside of the church and he was looking in. They were supposed to be making a big noise for him, telling others the good news of the gospel, but instead they were quiet. There was just a whimper out of them, just a whisper. They had nothing to say. They should have been doing everything they could have for Jesus. They should have been pulling out all the stops. I wonder if you know what that wee phrase means, pulling out all the stops. Maybe you've heard it in school or at home at times before. Maybe if you're doing something and you're sort of doing it half-heartedly, you're not giving it, or giving it your all, somebody will say to you, come on, you've got to try harder. You've got to pull out all the stops. Well, you know, boys and girls, that phrase actually comes from something in this church this morning. It comes from this down here. It comes from the organ. Those little things that you might see on the top of the organ, I think they're white on that organ. You can push them down and pull them down. They're called stops. And the stops in an organ control what noise an organ makes. If it makes a little bit of noise or if it makes a whole lot of noise. And maybe, Margaret, you can help me with this. Because, for example, if you put down just one stop, and maybe Margaret will play something for us now in a wee second. Put down one stop. We might have to listen very carefully to what, what's being played. Margaret, play us something there, just a wee line or something. Thank you. Now, we're all used to hearing the organ a wee bit louder than that. We've just sang a, a hymn there, and it was a lot louder than that. It's really quiet. You have to nearly strain to hear it. And that, but it's not the way it's meant to be played. It's capable of so, so much more. If you pull out a few more stops, it's going to be louder. And that's a bit like what the problem was in the church that we were reading about there. They weren't making enough noise. They were, they were silent. They weren't worshipping God the way they should have been. They were focused on all the wrong things. And that's not what a church should be. This church and all churches should be loud and should be brave and should be on fire for Jesus. We're to give everything to him and we're to pull out all the stops. Margaret, would you pull out a few more stops and give it the welly now and see what it sounds like. See what the difference is, boys and girls? Such Far, far louder noise now. Far more volume. That's what the organ is meant to sound like. And some of them are even louder than that. And that's much more the kind of noise and the kind of volume that this church should have been making. That far, far more potential than what they were, they were doing. But boys and girls and older people, every single person that comes in through these church doors has the potential and the ability to serve God and make a great noise for him. Everyone that comes in through these doors can be a part of a bigger work in this church. And in many ways we are like stops in an organ. Each having our own ability. And when we're all down together, when we're working together, we can make a loud noise and reach our potential. Now not everybody has the same job. People sometimes stand in the pulpit, people play the organ, and some people just sit at the back and they listen. And that's okay. But if you're a part of this church, then it's up to you as boys and girls and as older people 
to make this church reach its potential. We can make a massive noise. It's up to us whether it is just a whisper or whether it's a loud roar. Boys and girls, you can use everything that God has given you. And our next hymn will tell us a bit about that. You can pull out all the stops. You can use your your hands to serve God. You can use your, your lips to praise him, to sing, to pray, to tell others about Jesus. You can use your eyes to read the Bible, to learn from it. You can use your ears to listen to people who are going to tell you the truth from God's word. And you can use your hearts to love, to cherish, and to follow Christ all the days of your life. Boys and girls, thank you for listening. And we'll stand up and we'll praise God now, hopefully with a loud voice and with a loud organ, and we'll sing our hymn, your hymn, Oh, What Can Little Hands Do? with plenty to pray for as as David has reminded us at the start of the service so let's come before God in in a word of prayer with our prayers of thanks and intercession let's pray Father as we bow again in prayer we are reminded of the words of our first hymn glory be to him who loved us washed us from each spot and stain glory be to him who bought us made us kings with him to reign Father, it truly is beyond us to fully comprehend what you've done for us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, the King of angels, the church's King, the King of the nations, humbled himself in mercy and grace 
for a world of lost sinners was slain. Father, teach us something of that amazing love. Remind us daily of the sacrifice that was made so that we may be a loving or a living sacrifice for you. And thankful remembrance of what we have gained through no merit of our own. We come now to lay our thoughts and our petitions before you. Many things we have to to thank you for and many things to bring before you for for wisdom and, and for help. Father, we thank you for our elders and for our committee here in first. We know that especially at the moment they are in positions of great responsibility. They are there are many tough decisions to be made and it's maybe hard to know what to do at times. But we pray that you will give wisdom and discernment so that the future of this church may be a God centered and lasting one. We pray too for those who go and visit our members. We pray for safety, especially as they travel and from diseases that may harm. We know that visiting has had to look a little different over the months past. But nonetheless, may those who need a helping hand in their faith or or even in their lives be brought comfort by those who go out. May they be touched and strengthened by words read to them from your scripture or prayers offered up on their behalf. Father, we thank of our congregation. And we thank you that we are getting back to normality and each week gets us a little closer. We thank you that many now feel safe enough to return to worship together. But we do, of course, pray for those who still feel worried and anxious about being with so many people. Father, encourage them to come and worship with us. We miss them. We want them sitting beside us once again in fellowship. Father, it is so good and we must thank you that Midweek Bible study and prayer meeting will be returning in the next few weeks. Father, how we have missed being in person. We need as much fellowship and teaching from your word as we can get if we are to be able to be faithful in this day and age under our, of utter darkness and of evil. Father, as it returns, please encourage many to come out and to take part in our time together. We love to see people come and be encouraged and strengthened in their walk with you. And we pray too for organisations and groups that will hopefully soon return. We think of GB and BB. We think of Sunday school as well. Father, with so many changes, with changes to, to rules and regulations, it's tougher than ever to run organisations like these. And so we pray for Rebecca and David as they head up the large groups of, of GB and BB. Father, ensure that everything is done in a way that brings glory to you. And we pray too for the Sunday school leaders as they will meet soon to discuss how to move forward. We pray, Father, also for those in our congregation and in our town here who are, who are sick or who are bereaved, especially the McNeely family at this time. Father, illnesses seem to be increasing at the moment and so bring healing, if it be your will, to each person who is suffering, especially to those who have received bad news this week. And Father, bring comfort to those who mourn, as you promised to in your word. Father, we hear that the, the Language Commission will be meeting this coming week to discuss vacancies and, and make other tough decisions. There are so many churches without ministers, without pastoral teams, and so we must ask you to send people to these churches. Raise up great men of faith who will come in and preach the good news of the gospel. Those who will not compromise even for a second to please those who oppose you. And we are very aware of our own situation here in Island, and therefore we pray that you will Make your presence known to the elders as they continue to discuss the way forward. And indeed, to the person you have placed to call on, the person who will hopefully be standing in this pulpit very soon. 
We ask that you might prepare them even now for what lies ahead. Father, lastly, we turn turn on our news today and we see so much wrong with the world. We walk down the street and and people seem to say to one another that they've never seen the world in, in such a bad state, such evil, such sin, from those at the very bottom of society to those at the very top. The disease of sin has never seemed so strong or had such control over our lives, our governments, even our health care as they seem to take away life as well as protect it. Father, as we watch the news and as we may may well be disappointed and, and discouraged at many decisions that governments and higher authorities are making against your word, we still praise you and thank you that you still sit on the throne. You are still the one in control. And if at all if it all shows us anything, it's that your word is true and accurate and that we will see our Savior coming sooner than many think. Father, haste the day when we shall see Jesus coming on the clouds to make an end of all this evil. May the day come swiftly where every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a day that will be. Prepare us for it. Prepare our world for it. And may we be ready when the clouds break and the trumpet sounds. Father, we lay all that is on our hearts before you now, knowing that you are a God who knows our every need and who will answer our prayers. So it's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. I read earlier from uh, the NIV, but I always preach from the ESV, so if there's a few changes to the screen, that's why. But I'm sure over the years, uh, you've heard many a preacher stand in this pulpit and stand in other places and present a very clear gospel message. And then near the end of their sermon or the end of their epilogue, they'll try and invoke a response to the message that they've uh, just given. They'll say something like, There's no sitting on the fence with Jesus. You must decide whether to give Jesus everything or to give him nothing. There's no middle ground with Christ. And of course that's right. There is no middle ground with Christ. In fact, it's a lot more like being in the trenches of World War I. You're either on one side or the other, and the ground in between really is no man's land. No man can dwell there. Because either we give Jesus everything, Or we give him nothing. And in our passage this morning, we see a church that seems to be neither for nor against. Even the way they're described as lukewarm, it makes us think of that middle ground. They're neither one nor the other. They're camped out right in the middle of no man's land. But as history teaches us, and as faithful biblical teaching teaches us, that is a very, very dangerous place to be. But Laodicea was a wealthy place. It was an upper class and a a prosperous place to live and to do business. And it was known for four things more than anything else. Firstly, it was known for its banking. It was a center for banking and therefore a very wealthy city. Secondly, they were known for their, their soft black woolen garments that they sold in their marketplaces. Thirdly, they were known for their, their medicines and their remedies, especially their treatments and salves for condition of the eye. Three things that made them a very popular, to, popular place to live, to work, and to do business. But there was another thing that they were known for, and that wasn't just so great. Because even for a city with such 
so much going for it, such wealth. They didn't have their own water supply. And believe it or not, their water had to be piped in. Laodicea was between two great water sources. It had the famous hot spring water of Hierapolis to one side, and it had the cool, crisp, uh, fresh water of Colossae to the other. And so it was piped in from both those locations. And as the hot water travelled to Laodicea, it was cooled down. And as the cool water travelled from the, from the other side, it was warmed up as it travelled through the ground. So they both arrived about the same temperature. They were both tepid. They were both lukewarm and useless. And even these stone pipes that they were piped in through uh, had their own problems as well because as archaeology tells us there was an awful build up of what's called calcium carbonate content which would literally cause sickness or vomiting to people who were not used or who were not accustomed to it if, if somebody came to the city and they weren't used to it they would have taken a drink and immediately spat it back out and as we see from this passage Laodicea, the church in Laodicea is not much better than its water for it causes nausea and disgust in the one whose name it bears. And that's why as we go through each of the churches in Revelation, we notice that this church is actually the only one that receives no praise, no commendation whatsoever. It's the only church that we can say that about. Even the church in Sardis had at least a faithful few who had kept the faith. But in Laodicea, absolutely nothing, no faithful remnant whatsoever. And what's the reason for Christ's disgust? Verse 17 is clear. It says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So here's Christ's diagnosis of the church. It's very different from what they say about themselves, isn't it? They think they're rich. They're prospering. They need nothing. They're caught up in this materialistic philosophy. You can almost tell that this would be a church that is far more proud of its financial state than whether they preach and believe the gospel. Far more concerned with numbers. Who's in the church today? Rather than if those numbers are actually there to worship God or whether they're there to be entertained or given a pep talk for the week ahead. But Christ's assessment doesn't miss the target. His words are few, but he cuts right through the heart of their culture and they're boasting straight away. Everything they were known for, Christ mentions and puts the record straight. This high-class, self-sufficient, wealthy church is nothing but a shroud to mask a corpse that is dead underneath. For they are wretched. They are miserable. They are desolate people. They are pitiable, pathetic, deplorables. But then we see the biggest insult of all for a church like this when Christ says, you're poor. You can almost hear them say, what? We're the wealthiest church for miles around. We have the best banks, the best trade. We're self-sufficient. How on earth are we poor? But of course they were measuring wealth by human standards. Measure it up to Christ's standards and they have absolutely nothing to offer. Nothing of any value. Nothing that will last. They were happy to put their fortune before their faith. Then Christ calls them blind. They're living in a fool's paradise. They're completely unaware of the, the true spiritual state that they're in. They couldn't see that the Lord was actually outside their church seeking entry. 
then they were naked. Someone likened it to that famous book by Hans Christian Andersen, uh, The Emperor's New Clothes. They thought they were clothed. Maybe even in the, the soft black wool that Laodicea was known for. But in fact, Christ sees them as naked. A picture of defeat, of humiliation. They had the best clothes around. But even buying these woolen garments could not hide their spiritual shame. Everything that Laodicea could boast about has already been ripped apart in the first few verses. It has been seen by the faithful and true witness and the truth has come out. They are completely exposed. Poor, blind and naked. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote many a letter to individuals and the churches. We know that. And I've often thought if he were to, to come to Northern Ireland or to write a letter to Northern Ireland, the church collectively, what would it say? But as we come to this passage here, we can ask an even better question. What if Christ himself was to write a letter to the church in Northern Ireland? What would it look like? What would it say? Would it be similar to this? Hopefully it would at least mention a faithful remnant. But just look at the similarities between this church and ours in Northern Ireland. Look what we have to offer. We're some of the richest people in the world. We can't deny that every person in this church today has accumulated more money and wealth probably than at least 70 or 80% of the rest of the world. We've well-built houses. We've good cars that mostly run well. We've good jobs. We've careers. We've great wages and great salaries. We've far more than we could ever need. We are the rich ones. We have good health care. I know it's under strain at the minute, but we have. We have some of the best doctors and best nurses in the world, the best remedies, the best uh, medicines. We have the designer clothes as well. We don't even need to leave our sofa to buy them. We complain that we don't have enough, even though our wardrobes and our drawers are, are packed full. We can't even shut them with what we do have. We have the banks. We have the shops. We have the health care. We are completely self-sufficient. But what does that actually amount to with Christ? It means absolutely nothing. The church in Laodicea boasted all of these things as well. And what does Christ say? I'm about to throw up at the sight of you. But why? What's so wrong about being rich and prosperous, having these things? Is this church, is there more to it? Are, are they full of false doctrine? Are there heretics in their midst? Is it, is it false professors, false teachers? What is it? They're lukewarm. Their love has grown cold, grown cold. They're neither hot nor cold. There are three spiritual temperatures in Scripture. Luke 24 tells us of the burning heart that's on fire for the Lord. Matthew 24 tells us of a cold heart, people's love growing cold and turning from God. But here in Revelation 3, we have lukewarm. Neither one nor the other. And arguably the worst state to be in of all. Because the Bible tells us repeatedly that Jesus despises this kind of half-hearted religion. He's disgusted by lukewarmness. Those who are just content to go through the motions of worship, who have no zeal, who have no commitment. These are people that say they aren't as bad as their neighbor. They're not as bad as the Bible says they are. But they're self-righteous, completely satisfied with where they are spiritually. They don't care about growing. But Christ is nauseous. Second, 
by this facade of holiness within any church. But even with this harsh language, Christ offers us mercy. He still shows his immense grace and his long-suffering, because suffer long he will with many a sinner. Verse 18 has the answer to all of Laodicea's problems. It reads, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So we have a church here that has become completely stagnant. Like tepid water, they have turned other things for satisfaction. They've become something that Christ himself is basically disgusted at and even still he offers them exactly what they need. He told them they were poor. But he offers them gold refined by fire so they may be rich. He made them aware of their nakedness but offers them white garments to cover their shame. They were blind. But now with an anointing of the heavenly salve they will be able to see. Christ answers and provides a remedy for every side effect of sin in their lives. Spiritually these people were bankrupt. And the gold Christ offers isn't to make them rich by human standards, for they already are. It's a picture of holiness. God, Our gold was used heavily in the tabernacle and, and in the temple as a sign of God's holiness. And Christ is telling the Laodiceans that he alone can provide them with true holiness, acceptable before a holy God. He alone can purify them by his sanctifying grace. And he's graciously pleading with them to exchange these human temporal riches with his heavenly and eternal riches. There's true wealth, a wealth that no man can ever see or ever have any claim to without Christ as his righteousness. Then there's the garments to hide their spiritual shame. It reminds us of the passage later on in Revelation 19 when the church is granted to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Fine linen that only Christ can give to us. It's as if he's standing in the marketplace in Laodicea, crying out, come and buy from me and exchange your ripped, sin-stained garments of self-righteousness for the pure and white linen of true righteousness that only I can give to you by faith. Finally, Christ offers this heavenly salve for they've lost their vision. The second Peter that talks about spiritual blindness. Peter teaches us that if a If a believer is stagnant, if they're not growing in the Lord, then their spiritual vision is severely impaired. But there is, of course, a solution. Warren Wearsby says that we should allow Christ to apply the heavenly eye cell, for the eye is one of the body's most sensitive areas, and only the great physician can operate on it and make it what it ought to be. Only Christ can restore our spiritual vision. So we have the refined gold, the white garments, the heavenly salve, And they're all graciously and freely offered. And verse 19 tells us how we might receive them. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Be zealous. Have a heart that is on fire. None of this lukewarm nonsense. Let your hearts burn within you. And repent. Leave everything you hold on to, your banks, your wealth, your designer clothes, your special treatments and remedies. Forget about it all. Turn from all the sin that you love so much. Forget about the world, its consumer ideology, its materialistic philosophy, and head straight for your Savior. 
So many people, they try to come after Jesus and they hold on to other things. You might as well try to run a marathon chain to a 10-ton millstone. It does not work. You must leave everything behind in pursuit of Jesus and in pursuit of holiness. And look to the cross of Christ alone. Otherwise we end up like this pathetic excuse for a church. Lukewarm, lackadaisical, hypocritical. And then others, they try to conjure up repentance without faith and without zeal. And that doesn't work either. Repentance isn't just trying your very best to be a good person on a daily basis. Repentance is making Jesus the focus. Forsaking all else, humbling yourself before God and turning away from sin. We're to be zealous in our faith. Not half-hearted. Faith and repentance must go together. Then we verse 20. And you'll all recognize the words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now there's an awful difference of opinion about this verse. Some use it evangelically and very personally with the idea that Christ is standing at the door of your heart, so so let him in. Others would argue that it's not personal, but it's to a church. It's a corporate invitation to let the Savior back into worship. We have, I'm all sure, heard of preachers who have used this verse to lead the lost to Christ. But the basic application is to the believer. But what's clear is this. Here is a church in Laodicea that bears the name of Jesus, but he is outside looking in. The one who should be the very focus of the worship had either withdrawn himself or had been driven out by their half-hearted, pathetic religion. And his power was no longer in their life and in their work. I was reading a book this week and the author likened this story to the, the story of the, or this letter rather, to the story of the sleepy bride in Song of Solomon chapter 5. She can't be bothered to get up out of her bed while her beloved stands at the door and knocks. And when she finally does go to answer, he has withdrawn his presence. He has disappeared. And I think that's poignant. It's a very valid point. This church was sleeping. It was lethargic. Their Lord was outside the church trying to get in. And this letter was Christ knocking, showing them the real problems, letting them know that he was disgusted, but still wanting to show his mercy. But Jesus standing outside looking in, this isn't some picture of weakness, as some people tend to think it is. It's not like the movies, where we have Jesus standing out in the pouring rain, getting soaked, pleading with some feeble knock. We love to think of Jesus, our Saviour, as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And we think that a little too much. For if we think this is a feeble knock, then we give ourselves far too high of a position. We're giving ourselves far too high of a, or far too high of a view over our power and our freedom over Jesus. The thought that we control whether or not he gains entry to our hearts, that's a, that's a power that we do not have. Thank goodness, or we would never let him in. Such is our sin. Instead, it's proof of grace and mercy on Christ's part to even bother knocking in the first place. So this isn't some feeble attempt. This is a rattle of the fist, a knock of accusation, and a knock of contempt. Lukewarm behavior had driven him out of his own church, but in his mercy, he stands 
outside with the cure, but only warm hearts and fiery faith and true repentance can bring them back in. Coldness, even lukewarmness, will only serve to drive them further away and maybe even cease his knocking altogether. And that's a scary thought. We presume upon the forbearance and the grace of Christ far too much. We think that his, his mercy and his long suffering will never end, but that's not true. It's a bad choice to mess around with the grace that we are shown. Jesus shows the Laodiceans that he is still willing to come in, still willing to fix their church. It's a corporate invitation, and they would do well to take heed. But there is a bit of a personal message in there too. For what does he say? He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, if any man, it definitely sounds personal in some way. But whether it is or whether it's not, we know this much. Christ may well withdraw his presence from a lukewarm church, but he will never leave his own. Then finally we have the reward, the promise for those who are his own. Verse 21 reads, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me in my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That phrase, the one who conquers, that's mentioned in all of the letters to all of the churches. And again, at the end of Revelation in chapter 21, it shows us the inheritance, the promise that we have as believers. Even those of us who are by our very nature, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked, can still inherit a throne by the grace of God. But of course, the church in Laodicea had been sitting on thrones. They had made thrones for themselves. Thrones that would ultimately pass away. And they couldn't see past them. People very rarely do. But here Christ offers them an eternal throne. One that will last forevermore. Sharing in the privilege that Christ enjoys as we reign with him. What grace. What mercy. And what patience. To continue to strive and offer such a wonderful inheritance to people like us this letter is a final warning to the church and that much is very plain to see this church is as bad as its water it's tepid it's lukewarm it's without usefulness or power yet christ in his mercy stands outside the door just outside the door offering everything that they need try gold for their poverty white raiment for their nakedness heavenly eye salve for their utter, utter blindness to their own spiritual state. They're being told very plainly, face up to your condition. Return to the basics of the gospel. Submit to my discipline. Be zealous for me. Cling to my promises. Hear what the Spirit says to you. If we can admit that this church is so much like our own collectively in this land, then we must take the warning to heart ourselves. Give Christ his rightful place in our worship and plead with him to return us to a place of fiery faith and burning hearts. I read a lovely quote this week in preparation for today from a man by the name of Joel Beek. And with these words, I'll finish and I'll just leave you with them. Christ knocks on the doors of his church and on the hearts of sinners. He knocks with invitations, with love, and with sincerity. He knocks with judgments. He knocks with afflictions. He knocks with death. 
He knocks every day of our lives. He knocks in the small things of his daily goodness. But how will you respond to his knocking? Amen. Our final hymn this morning will be unfamiliar in many ways, the words at least. But it is a familiar tune. But I think it is very appropriate to the passage that we've just read this morning from and, and studied from Revelation. So let's stand to sing our final hymn, O Jesus, Thou Standing Outside the Fast Closed Door. benediction and now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority both now and forevermore amen Thank you.